morning, College Park. Today's scripture reading is John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you may bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Before we get into John 15 this morning, <clears throat> I want to remind you that um, we have a regular prayer time that we have here at College Park Church. Usually that's on the third Sunday night of the month. This month it's going to be on the fourth Sunday night, and as a part of that, we'll be having a members meeting, considering some important uh, things related to some title changes that we need your approval on. And also, as a part of that uh, service, we're going to take um, about 45 minutes or so and talk about race and the gospel. Uh, Dr. Charles Ware will be with us, president of uh, Crossroads Bible College. He's going to talk for a, a few moments, and then I'm going to uh, conduct an interview with him, and would uh, love to have you be uh, there uh, August 23rd, Sunday night, both a members meeting and a time with uh, Dr. Ware on race and the gospel. Hope you can come. That's a very important subject, and uh, I think you'll greatly benefit from Dr. Ware's wisdom and insight that evening. So let's pray. Father, help us now to receive your word on this Sunday with the kind of open hearts that are required when we're dealing with your word and such important truths regarding what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Pray that you'd launch us into a season that we've identified for the next number of weeks that will create spiritual growth within us that will allow us to become the kind of people that you want us to be, and that you might use this Sunday to begin a journey, a renewal, a season of reflection of what it really means to be a, a follower of yours, to be a Christian, an ordinary one, one who's filled with power and grace because of you being in us. And so we ask you now, by your spirit to teach us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this particular sermon series has been brewing in my heart for quite a while. It's a long time, in fact. I'm not sure exactly where it began, the burden for this series, but it had to do with the following moments. In, in my lifetime in pastoral ministry, I've had the opportunity to witness what some might call a mini revival or a full-fledged revival. Uh, 
seen it on college campuses, saw seasons of renewal or revival in my church um, in Holland, and the reality is there were some people who got so excited about those particular moments of revival, those moments of renewal, or students at a college campus, I got so excited about those moments that when the revival sort of ended, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to kind of go back to normal Christian life. Fast forward a couple years later, I ran into a, a pastor friend of mine who made this what at the time was kind of a shocking statement, and it was this. He said, you know the challenge with the Christian life is that it's so daily. (laughs) And that resonated with me. I was like, that that fits something. While on sabbatical, I um, had this rather challenging experience that when I would go to other churches, uh, I had to really work hard to get ready for the Lord's Day. The reality is, is that my experience on Sunday morning, I come here and I'm, I got a sermon ready, and I'm, I'm amped, I'm ready, I know what's gonna happen, there's a sense of uh, excitement and enthusiasm, and it was good to be just kind of a, a standard church member where I woke up on Sunday, I was like, well, I'm gonna go to church, and, and honestly, there were some Sundays when I would walk away from a worship service, and I was like, eh. <laughs> Never here, of course, but, <laughs> but I, I, kinda, I went to lunch with my wife, and I was like, yeah, it's a good, good Sunday. And I found myself having to really work through some stuff about when I woke up and how to get ready for the Lord's Day, how to come in and worship. And I found myself, sometimes took me a while to sort of get into worship and like, this is what I do. This is what I'm committed to. And then recently I had a conversation with one of my sons. We were talking about how to listen to a sermon and how to listen to a sermon when you aren't emotionally moved by that sermon. In fact, he was struggling. He says, Dad, it was a pretty good sermon, but... I wasn't moved emotionally, and he was struggling with that, and my question to him was this, son, why do you think that every sermon should move you emotionally? He didn't know what the answer. And then recently, I was at a conference, and I heard a a speaker caution pastors and and teachers about what can be a self-focused pressure of trying to preach extraordinary sermons every week. As I sat there listening, I I was convicted because honestly, candidly, there have been some times, many more than where I'd care to admit, that I go home on Sunday nights exhausted, not because of the demands of preaching just in and of itself, but because of the internal pressure to preach an extraordinary sermon. And so I gave up preaching extraordinary sermons. And some of you have noticed. (laughs) So I lay in bed at night and you know, sometimes our staff will ask me during a Monday, and like, how, did, how do you think Sunday went? And my answer now is, I don't know. And you know what? I've become okay with that. All of this was brewing in my heart, and then I read a quote from a book called Ordinary by Michael Horton. And in that book, he's pushing against a trend that he sees in the American church with our fascination with the next big thing. He writes this, we've forgotten that God showers his extraordinary gifts through the ordinary means of grace, loves us through ordinary fellow image bearers, and sends us out into the world to love and serve others in ordinary callings. Let me read that again. God showers his extraordinary gifts through 
ordinary means of grace, loves us through ordinary fellow image bearers, and sends us out into the world to love and serve others in ordinary callings. Now let me be clear, I am not saying that extraordinary moments are bad or unhelpful in and of themselves. They have their place, they have their role, and they're an important part of our overall spiritual development. And nor am I suggesting that as Christians you ought to be content with some sort of mediocre, subpar, or average Christianity. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean doing less or doing it poorly. Instead, my burden for this month is the way that I think as Christians, as American Christians, we get our hopes set on quick fixes, immediate results, the next big thing, and we can give up or miss the beauty when it comes to the power of the ordinary Christian life. I mean, so much of our lives are filled with the beautiful ordinary. Ordinary Sundays, ordinary marriage, ordinary parenting, ordinary work, and there's something incredibly beautiful, as I hope to show you this morning, about the infusion of the life of Christ into all of that that is absolutely extraordinary, but we might be tempted to miss it because we're looking for the next big thing. For instance, if someone were to ask you, was today a good Sunday? What would be the things that you would list as to why it was a good Sunday or why it wasn't? So the the essence of what we're gonna be talking about for the next four weeks is what we've called the ordinary revolution. And this ordinary revolution is renewing our commitment and renewing our passion for the ordinary Christian life that actually creates extraordinary changes. In other words, while there is something stunning and attractive about radical and sweeping spiritual moments, there's also something equally stunning and just as attractive about the quiet, normal, relentless pursuit of Christ-likeness that is less flashy, less noticed, and yet honestly, far more common. So the Christian life is rooted both in point moments And it's also rooted in process moments. And it's, I think, all too easy to forget the importance of what it means to be an ordinary follower of Jesus. So for the next four weeks, calling this the ordinary revolution, we're gonna talk about this in conjunction with what during this time of year we call live. Uh, The last number of years we've taken a month to talk about subjects like identity, anger, mortification of sin, talked about the tongue, fear of man, and for the next four weeks, we're gonna talk about this matter of the ordinary Christian life. We're gonna look today, just introducing the concept and what we're gonna be doing together for the next four weeks with the beauty of ordinary. Next week, the context of ordinary. So what is the church all about? Third week, the practice of ordinary. What does it mean for the spirit to be in our lives, and how does he relate to the ordinary Christian life, and then finally the calling of the, of the Christian life, the calling of the ordinary. What does it mean to 
Infuse the life of Christ into everything that you do in life, specifically the vocation that God has given you. So the goal of this time is for you to learn something. So Sunday mornings, for you to be dialing into what is God saying. Secondly, to do something. So we have some challenges that we want you to take. Actually, we want you to take one challenge, and we'll talk about that more in a moment. And then finally, we want you to share something. So the goal of Live is not just to have you learn something, but it is that in your small groups, that you would share what is it that God is showing you and teaching you, and what are you learning in one particular area of life and spiritual development that you've chosen to focus upon. So, a few things that you need to know about LIVE. Let me give you a little introduction and introduce you to some of the materials that uh, you'll need to use um, every week. When you came in the sanctuary this morning, you should have received a a packet of um, material that included the sermon notes and the uh, discussion guide and also a card. That packet looked like this. If you didn't get one, just next week you can get one. You'll get them as you you leave this morning. You'll be able to still stay uh, on track with us. But, so you got the sermon notes, that's one thing. The second thing is the uh, sermon application guide. This is what you could use in your small groups. There's also a great family devotional guide um, inside there. There's a place for notes, some great questions, so commend that to you. The third piece is this card, the Ordinary Challenge. And this is something that we'll use at the end. Essentially, what we're asking you to do is to take a single challenge. Now, there's 12 total challenges on the back of the card. These all relate to ordinary things, ordinary disciplines that Christians do in order to help their spiritual lives. And what we want you to do is to pick one of these. Now, you can go around the tables in the foyer and see all 12, but you really should only pick one. Some of you overachievers, don't do 12, don't do two. Let's just do one, okay? Just do one, and you're gonna do that one for four weeks meaning you're gonna pick up a challenge today, and then next week you'll come back, and there'll be a different challenge every week. And the goal is for you to pick one area and see if you can grow deep in that one particular category. Along with that, the ordinary challenge, so today we want you to choose what your challenge is, and then also we've got a spot for you to write in every week, what's one thing that God is telling me and teaching me during this season? So you bring this back with you next week, and the second week, fill in the blank. What is it that God is teaching me this week as it relates to this ordinary challenge of what it means to follow after Jesus. So that's the ordinary challenge. There are 12 stations in the foyer in the atrium area, and after the service, you're going to go out and take a look at which of these would you choose to participate in over the next month. We also have some notebooks that if you want to put all this together into a notebook, we have these for sale in the, uh, in the resource room. And then also there's um, at the resource center a, um, a number of great resources. This one in particular, Saturate, uh, is a book about how to have discipleship be more than a program, how to inculcate discipleship into every aspect of your life in some ways that you might think even would kind of be surprising. So how to be an ordinary follower of Jesus who applies the extraordinary concepts of discipleship in your life at, at multiple areas. So there's a number of other books over there as well. I would commend them all to you. Our hope is that this series will ignite a passion within you for normal, everyday Christianity in a way that your life over four weeks, incrementally changes. My prayer for you is that you'll take one step, one step in the right direction towards the normal Christian life and you'll start developing some new habits in your life or maybe for some of you who have given up particular aspects of walking with Jesus, 
that you'll be able to reignite a passion for one particular area that you've kind of set aside, or maybe you didn't see the immediate results, and now's the time for you to get re-engaged in either that discipline or involved in a small group or taking steps in regards to church membership or soul care. So there's a number of steps, 12 of them. We want you to think about choosing one. If you're not a Christian and you're here, uh, here's what I'd love for you to do. I want you to think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I'm gonna talk a lot over the next four weeks about what it means to be a disciple. And I'd love to have you come back week after week and learn what it means to really be a follower of Jesus. You could even participate, even though you're, you're, you're not a Christian yet. And I would commend the scripture reading or the Bible reading track for you, because I think the best way for you to figure out what Christianity is all about or what Jesus is all about is to read the Bible. And so that, that track would be the one that I would commend to you. Now, we're going to start in John 15 today, and I want to talk with you about the ordinary beauty of abiding. We're going to look at this text, a text that has always fascinated me, because there's something very simple and something very important that is here. John 15 is set in the context of what is called the farewell discourse. It's called the farewell discourse because Jesus is about, in John's gospel, to be crucified, and the last words that he gives to his disciples are found in John 13 through 17. This is the time when Jesus shares with them really who he is, who he wants them to be, and the kind of things that he wants to characterize them. And so we have a number of rather famous moments. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He announces who will betray him. He, he says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. In John 14, he promises the Holy Spirit, and he comforts the disciples that he has overcome the world and he then prays specifically for them in John 17. All of that to say that in the midst of what Jesus is describing here as the essence of being a disciple of his, John 15 is really the heart of the heart of Jesus' message. Really what we have here, I think, is the essence of the Christian life. And yet what you're gonna find is that what Jesus says here is a bit ordinary. So let's see what we can learn. In verses one to three, we find Jesus describing himself and the Father and this concept of a vine in a way that connects sovereignty and this metaphor of being a vine. And so we see the sovereignty of God over the ordinary. Look at verse one. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So Jesus uses this metaphor of a vine. He says, I am the true vine. This is the last of seven I am statements in John's gospel. And there is a historical context that's important to note here, that when Jesus says, I'm the true vine, he's pulling from an idea out of Isaiah chapter five, where God describes the people of Israel as a vine, but a vine that produces wild grapes. So the idea is that Israel was broken and a sick vine, and Jesus comes in and says, I am the true vine. It's an important statement. And yet a very ordinary metaphor. The goal of the vine and its sign of health is the same, that being fruitfulness, and it's all over verses 1 to 11. 
In fact, the father, as the vine dresser, is the one whose actions actually keep the vine healthy and full of life. And so part of the father's vine dresser role is to prune the vine, taking away branches that are unfruitful so that the vine can bear even more fruit. So the aim of the vine and the aim of the father's activity are both one and the same. It is to create fruitfulness out of that vine. And what's clear is that behind the fruitfulness is the sovereign power of God. In fact, so much so that Jesus provides assurance to the disciples in verse three that they are already clean. They need not wonder about the vine dresser's orientation toward them. So what do we learn from this? We learn that Jesus describes himself as the true vine, that the Father is the vine dresser, and that God has a relentless goal for fruitfulness, and he is going to sovereignly orchestrate the pruning, the shaping of the vine in order for fruitfulness to take place. You know what that means? That means that there's no one in the universe more passionate about your spiritual growth than God. In fact, nothing in your life is outside of that plan to produce Christ-like fruit in your life. That means that God loves you if you're a follower of Jesus, he cares for you if you're a follower of Jesus, and there's nothing that could ever happen in your life that'll be outside of God's plan in order to create fruitfulness in you. But the challenge is that sometimes we get into seasons when we don't know what to do, or we don't know where God, how God is leading, we don't, we don't know what the next step is, or we don't know how to solve very difficult and hard problems in our lives, and what we want is we want an immediate solution, we want a quick fix, we want an easy answer, when the reality is that God is passionately pursuing fruitfulness, but he's doing it in a way that we don't like, or ways that don't make sense to us. You see, our passion in our culture is for a quick answer, our passion is for quick fixes, And sometimes, God doesn't work that way. In fact, I would say he often doesn't work that way. Now what's the essence of ordinary? Verse four is critical. Verse four gets to the heart of John 15. It's the essence of what it means to be a disciple. And it doesn't sound very flashy. The essence of ordinary, the essence of the ordinary Christian life sounds like this. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So the whole metaphor about the vine and the whole hope of fruitfulness is connected to this phrase, abide in me. What does the word abide mean? It's the Greek word meno, and it means to remain in It means to continue in a state of something. It means to stay in a condition or to stay inside of something. It is John's favorite word as it relates to his relationship with Christ. In fact, the word meno is used 118 times in the entire New Testament. 67 of those times, John uses it. Listen to how he uses it in 1 John. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So for the apostle John, to be a Christian means that you abide. Notice that he doesn't say if you're a Christian, you change the world. If you're a Christian, you're, you're 
um, kind of person who's going to radically alter the course of human history. No, for John, to be a follower of Jesus means that you abide, you abide in Christ. It's the same kind of concept that the Apostle Paul uses when he talks about what it means to be in Christ. He loves, Paul loves those positional statements, be in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. For John, it's all about abiding. In fact, if John were to have a t-shirt, it would be hashtag abide. That's his word. That's what he would love. So what does it specifically mean to abide? There's three things. And these, these terms overlap. Let me put some handles on this. At a minimum, it means that you're connected to Christ. Or in this way, it refers to the union that we have with Christ. So again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is where it all begins. This is how you become a Christian. It means that in being united to Christ, you have come to a point where you have turned away from your sins. You've realized that you're a sinner, that you've offended a holy God, that there's no way that you can be righteous in and of yourself. You've come to the conclusion that at the end of the day, you're actually the biggest problem in your life, and you can't change the one thing that needs to be changed, which is your heart, your desires, your longings. And so you... you you look to Christ, according to the Bible, you put your trust in him, because when he died on the cross, what he did is he paid atonement, or made atonement for our sins, and the Bible promises that if we put our faith in Christ, then God takes his death and he counts it as ours, and he gives us Christ's righteousness. And from a spiritual standpoint, the Bible describes that as being in Christ. Or it means that we're abiding in him, we have a union with him, and without that connection to Jesus, in that way there is no life, there is no fruit, there is no hope. So it starts with union with Christ. And secondly, it relates not only to union or connection, but also dependence. It, well, well, union with Christ is the starting point. Abiding in him doesn't just end there. To abide in Jesus means that there is a lifelong dependence upon him. In the same way that you trust him for the forgiveness of your sins, in the same way that you trust him for eternal life, you trust him now in every arena of your life. Granted, not perfectly, struggling, trying to fight through how to depend upon him, but it means that at the end of the day, you know that without Jesus, you can't do anything. You can't do marriage right, you can't do the world right, you can't look at money right, you don't know how to have any relationships that are in the right way. And that's exactly what Jesus says in John chapter 15 and verse five. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Those of you who are 60, does that lesson get easier as you get older? Oh, rats. Because you know what I'm finding? I'm finding that the older I get, the more I realize that is true, and yet it's not any easier to apply. Is that good news or bad news? I don't know, but I think it's true. There's no fruit, there's no success, there's no change, there's no maturity apart from the life-giving power of Jesus. That's the beauty and the trauma of suffering, it's trauma and the beauty of suffering is it awakens us that you can't live any day without the dependent power of Jesus living in and through you. Christianity starts with Jesus, it's empowered by Jesus. Here's the third thing, so connection, dependence. Here's the third thing, and this is where I think many people miss it. This is where I would suggest, if you're gonna miss anything, this is what you are missing. It's continuance. 
Jesus says abide. He doesn't just say trust. He doesn't say believe. He doesn't say hope. He says abide. And I think the reason he uses that word and that language is the sense that it needs to be continually applied where we celebrate our union, we acknowledge our dependence, and every day we realize and recognize in so many areas of life, I need you, I need you. Every hour, I need you. It means to take refuge in Christ. It means to abide in his words in verse seven, to abide in his love in verse nine. To abide in Jesus means that we bring the life-giving power of Jesus into every aspect of our lives such that everything is touched by his influence. Everything is touched by his power, his words, his love. It means that once you have been radically changed by the life of Jesus, once you have received him and you're united with him, it means then that Jesus changes how you think. He changes what you love. He changes what your purpose is. He changes what you do and why you do it. He changes what you don't do, what makes you happy. He changes what makes you sad. The life of Jesus then begins to infect how you see a broken world. It affects how you see your own identity, your gender, your singleness, your marriage, your children, your work, your sexuality, your money, and eternity. And the essence of Christianity then is living out this life of Jesus in major, in life-altering, defining moments, and also living it out every single day. And I would argue that many believers do not understand or appreciate or practice the beauty of abiding in Christ. Instead, we want quick fixes, fast answers. We're used to figuring things out on our own. We live in a culture marked by rugged individualism. And yet Jesus says, abide in me. And I don't know about you, but when I hear him say, abide in me, it sounds pretty ordinary. It seems so slow, so organic, so boring, so daily, but it's anything but that. In fact, if you were to look ahead in the text, we would see the effects of the ordinary. Let me just give you a list. In verse five, Jesus says, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Verse six, if you abide in me, you will give evidence of your true conversion. If you abide in me, verse seven, you will ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Verse eight, You abide in him, you will glorify God. Verse nine, you abide in him, you will be affirmed in God's love. You abide in him, verse 11, you will love what God loves. Frankly, church, that's a pretty amazing list. There's some pretty radical things that Jesus says here, provided that we abide in him. And all of these things, these beautiful promises that are made are rooted in what it means to abide. So I wanna suggest to you that abiding in Christ is actually more revolutionary than you may have even imagined. And I wanna ask you a question. Could it be that we are missing the beautiful revolution of the ordinary Christian life? Always looking for the next big thing, the next big experience, when the reality is, most of the time, spiritual growth is incremental, it's quiet, it's slow, it's hard, It's daily. For instance, there's something beautiful about a person who just, they just abide by constantly, faithfully, and intentionally spending time saturating their mind with the word of God over 50 years. Oh, to be a 
man or a woman in their 60s who have just had six decades of the infusion of the Bible into their mind. Or think of a mom who faithfully prays for her kids and lovingly corrects them in alignment with the word year after year after year after year. Do you know who leads more people to Christ than anybody on earth? Moms do. Moms are our greatest evangelists when it comes to Christianity. A dad who abides by opening the word with his family and pointing them to Jesus in family devotions, even though he doesn't know all the questions or the answers. A single adult who abides by asking Christ to give her strength to swim against the stream of culture when she's at work or with friends. A person who struggles with a lifelong illness who every day wakes up in pain or in discouragement that there's really no healing in sight, and they just choose to trust in Jesus every day while in pain. Or a teenager who fights for purity by abiding in the promises that he is intentionally engraving into his mind with the infusion of the memorization of God's word. I was thinking of all this, and I went to a funeral on Monday of Gloria Gelbke, who passed away a couple weeks ago of Alzheimer's, her husband Roy faithfully served his wife for many years, but especially over the last eight as the sun set in glorious life as Alzheimer's took its full effect. And when I saw him, I said to Roy, thank you for modeling Christ-likeness by caring for your wife. I could give you other examples. The point is this, that sometimes we miss the spiritual significance of abiding in Jesus in the ordinary aspects of life. For instance, Tish Warren was a 22-year-old. She served in an African village, and after she returned from the mission field and married and then had two children, she began to think, you know what? What does it really mean to serve Jesus? She served the Lord over in the mission field, and now she's home with two kids, and she's thinking, am I serving Jesus now? And there were spiritual issues that she was struggling with. Here's what she wrote. What I am slowly realizing is that for me, being in the house all day with a baby and a two-year-old is a lot more scary and a lot harder than being in a war-torn African village. Some of you are like, absolutely. What I need courage for is the ordinary, daily, everydayness of life. Caring for a homeless kid is a lot more thrilling to me than listening well to the people in my home. Giving away clothes and seeking out edgy communities, or Christian communities, requires less of me than being kind to my husband on an average Wednesday morning or calling my mother back when I don't feel like it. I've come to the point where I'm not sure anymore what God counts as radical. And I suspect for me, getting up and doing the dishes when I'm short on sleep and patience is far more costly and necessitates more of a revolution in my heart than some of the more outwardly risky things I've lived in the past. I've lived in in the past. So this is what I need now, courage to face an ordinary day. I remind you that Christianity is both radical 
and ordinary. The problem is, is there's times in church history when the church tends to overfocus on one to the neglect of the other. For instance, in my studies in the English Reformation um, and the Protestant Reformation while on sabbatical, it, it was very evident and very clear that the church got this wrong and the Reformation actually really helped. When in the Protestant Reformation, when grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone was brought to the surface again, it changed how people saw many different areas of their society. Because in the Catholic Church at the time, if, um, you know, if you were a layman, I mean, that was okay. But if you really wanted to be spiritual, you needed to become a monk or a priest or a nun. Marriage. Well, marriage was acceptable and even celebrated. They had weddings, but if you really wanted to be spiritual, you needed to be celibate. Regular gatherings in the church and normal vocations in life were respectable. But the truly dedicated were the ones who lived in monasteries. What happened is when the gospel surfaced again, it changed not only how people saw the gospel, but when that gospel took hold of their lives, it also changed how people viewed ministry and marriage and spirituality and sexuality. And suddenly the ordinary Christian life came out of the shadows as people began to see the sweeping implications of the grace of God in every area of their life. And when that happened, it was truly revolutionary. You see, this is what I hope happens in the next four weeks. I hope you can see and savor the beauty of the ordinary abiding in Christ Christianity. And my prayer is that your life will be incrementally different. Not because of some new thing that we're doing at church, but rather because of a renewed commitment in your life to live a way or to think in a way that maybe you sort of gave up on because you didn't see immediate effects. There's some of you who your time in the word has been very poor because you just haven't seen the effect or your prayer life has been in the tank or you're not involved in community because you got burned with some people at your last church. Any, any one of the challenges that we're offering to you may be just a, maybe a reminder of where you used to be and where you're not today. You see, I've seen it too often in terms of what happens when people live for the extraordinary. Let me give you some of the dangers of what can happen. And again, let me say, the extraordinary is not bad. It's not bad at all. But it is very easy, I think, to live for those extraordinary moments at the neglect of the ordinary, and I've seen some of the effects. Here's five. Five situations, I think, that happen when people give in to extraordinary at the neglect of the ordinary. First, emotionalism. When Christianity, while Christianity should be emotional, there are times when we can wrongly measure the depth or the genuineness of spiritual growth because of how we feel. We can allow our feelings to become the ultimate test and guide of our spiritual life, and that frankly is dangerous because feelings change and they can change very quickly. In fact, I get nervous when someone after a service or in membership class, they come up to me and they're like, this is the best church ever. You're preaching? I've never heard anything like that. We absolutely love this church. I'm like, how long have you been here? Three weeks. I'm like, oh, great. We love this church. And I know in the back of my mind, I've seen it happen over the last 20 years, that about two years later, 
They're gonna be saying the exact same thing to some other pastor at some other church because they got so emotionally wrapped up here and what they found out is, yeah, they just came on three good Sundays in a row. <laughs> they, they ran into 15 really nice people and we hid the 25 others in a closet who aren't so nice. <laughs> and that's why I tell people when you come, we want you to be a part of this body, but come and come with eyes wide open. So this emotionalism can, can really be disastrous. Or maybe you, you had an incredible um, experience spiritually, and then you think everybody needs to have this experience. And then if it doesn't happen, things happen in your soul. Secondly, disappointment. Not only emotionalism, but disappointment. Since so much of Christianity is not extraordinary, we can become discouraged or disheartened when our expectations aren't met. And maybe you saw something really great happen in college and you had this cool intimacy. It was just you and a bunch of dudes hanging around reading the Bible and it was so wonderful in community. And you wonder why your small group of seven 40-year-olds that can't be that anymore. And it's just like, man, that was college. Get over it, move on, you're old, right? And you grew up a little bit, right? And you're not so edgy anymore. And that's probably pretty good because you got kids and, and, and there are effects of maturity and yet you can really get hung up on this disappointment piece of it's not like it was like the good old days. Some of you are coming out of a season of really tough pain. Have you walked through one of those seasons when our daughter died? I mean, it was hard. I would never want to live there if I had to again. I would never choose that. But you know what was really interesting about that? Man, God was... He was so close and so near and so personal. My wife and I called it painful grace and it was so hard and yet so beautiful. When that season ended, I didn't miss the pain, but I missed that sense of utter desperation caused by pain. And it took me a while to figure out my spiritual footing post-trauma. Third, so emotionalism, disappointment. Third, impatience. You can. You can look for the extraordinary and that can end up diminishing the importance of slow, methodical, incremental work of sanctification. This is the beauty of having children, yeah. <laughs> is that you learn parenting is slow, incremental work. There are very few Shazam moments. There are very few moments when your kids are like, I totally get it. Like, <laughs> you love me, I need to obey. Got it. I mean, that's, that just doesn't happen. It's slow, incremental work, right? Look, come on, marriage is like that, right? I, I didn't clear this with my wife this morning. It's always dangerous to say, but um, when, when we decided to get married, what I did is I took a notebook out and I split it in half with a line and I was gonna evaluate if Sarah and I should get married. And so what I did is I listed all of her negative qualities on one side. There were, just, there were just a few. And then I listed all of her positive qualities and oh, pages and pages, right? And, and then I looked at that and said, this is, if this never changes, this is what I'm committing myself to. And you know what's interesting? The things on the other side, the, the few negative qualities, they're still there in both of our lives. There's been growth, but you know what? Those have been incremental in our lives. And friends, that's what the normal Christian life usually is. Are there some phenomenal, radical change moments? Sure there are, but there's far more incremental. And if you're not careful, you can become impatient, 
And then you could also, number four, develop a critical spirit. People who have witnessed or experienced extraordinary spiritual seasons can look at other people or less other churches and think, yeah, they're not as spiritual as we are. And then finally, it can create doubt. It's easy to doubt the work of God in your life when that progress seems slow or less flashy or less dramatic. See somebody else and it seems like they're changing like crazy and you're looking at your own life and you're like, I'm kind of struggling slowly by slowly. And the reality is is that the ordinary Christian life looks more like abiding in Christ, growing in him, figuring out how the sanctification process works. And I think there's something helpful about being reminded that it's not all about quick fixes. So now what? The reason that we're talking about this, the burden that I have for you, for myself, is for us not to neglect the beauty of the ordinary Christian life. I want you to think and pray with me this week about what it means to abide in Christ. Maybe put it very practically that when your feet hit the floor this week that you'd say, Lord Jesus, I belong to you, I'm dependent upon you, and today I want to follow you by having you enter every aspect of my life today. I want you to abide in me and I want to abide in you. I want to remind you that there is something really revolutionary about ordinary people in ordinary neighborhoods with ordinary jobs who attend an ordinary church, who listen to ordinary sermons, who abide in an extraordinary Christ whose words and love affect them so deeply that they look and act like him out in the world. There's something beautiful about that. What I want you to do is to take one of the challenges that we've identified and I want you to ask yourself how your might, life might look different if you could grow in just one of these areas. And so what we're gonna do in a moment is we're gonna bow together in prayer. If you have the card, I want you to turn it over and as we pray, I want you just to look at the list of these 12 ordinary challenges and just before the Lord say, God, which one of these do you want me to pursue? And then you're gonna go out in the atrium and we've got some resources out there and we want you to take one step towards one particular aspect of the Christian life for you to maybe renew your um, soul in one of these 12 areas, believing that there's something really special and really awesome about ordinary people doing ordinary things to help them live in an extraordinary way for the rest of their life. Let's pray. Father, we ask you now as we look at these 12 challenges that are on the back of this challenge card and think about how our life could be helped over the next four weeks, would you give us grace to take one step and perhaps for some of my brothers and sisters to re-engage in some aspect of their spiritual development that they've set aside because of disappointment or maybe neglect or maybe just because they're tired. I pray you would just pour out your spirit upon us as we engage together in this experience of just what does it mean to abide in you and to live in that as we share in small groups and talk with one another. Let our words be encouraging and helpful to each other. So God, now help us. Help us to abide in you this week. Thank you for the word from John 15. Help us to live in it. 
and to do one thing, you helping us by the Spirit that helps us to look more like you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.